for me, the most important thing for transhumanism is that the people never bring out their pitchforks and say, stop the science, stop everything until we're fed. So it's really important, especially as someone who's run political campaigns, that governments are able to keep people happy. And I mean just the average person happy across the spectrum. And that means well-fed, well-educated, you know, a roof over their head and things like that. If you can keep society running, the transhumanism will arrive on its own. Hello everyone, my name is Stephen Parton and you're listening to The Feedback Loop by Singularity. Before we jump into today's episode, I'm excited to share a bit of news. First, I'll be heading to South by Southwest in Austin on March 14th for an exclusive Singularity event at the Contemporary, a stunning modern art gallery that is in the heart of downtown Austin. This will include a full day of connections, discussions, and inspiration with coffee and snacks throughout the day with an open bar celebration at night. So if you're heading to South by and you're interested in joining me and having some discussions, meeting our community of experts and change makers, then you can go to su.org slash basecamp dash South by Southwest, which I will link in the episode description. So you can sign up for this free invite only event. And just to note, it is not a marketing employee when I say that space is genuinely limited. So if you are serious about joining, you probably want to sign up as soon as you can and get one of those reserved spots. And in other news, we have a exciting opportunity for those of you with a track record of leadership who are focused on positive impact. Specifically, we're excited to announce that for 2023, we're giving away a full ride scholarship to each one of our five very renowned executive programs where you can get all kinds of hands-on training and experience with world leading experts. You can find the link to that also in the episode description. And once more, time is of the essence here because the application deadline is on March 15th. And with those notes out of the way, we can now get on to this week's guest, Zoltan Istvan, who was actually one of the very first guests who we've ever had on the show. Zoltan rose to fame at the time when he ran for president of the United States as a transhumanist shortly after having published a very controversial book called The Transhumanist Wager. In this episode, we check back in with Zoltan to see how his views have changed since we've last talked. This included exploring his changing views in ethics, thanks to his current studies at Oxford, the incredible changes that ChatGPT appears to be bringing to society, the disappointments of the longevity movement, and especially the fears around AGI retribution and the useless class of humans who will have very few skills that are needed in the transhuman future. Depending on your take, this could either be an incredibly optimistic or pessimistic conversation, but I'll leave you to decide that for yourself. So let's jump into it. Everyone, please welcome to the feedback loop, Sultan Istvan. So I think the best place to start is for those who might not know you, uh, just to get a little bit of your background and some of the stuff you've been working on these days, because it's been, I think, three or four years since our last uh, talk on this podcast, so there's probably a lot to catch up on. Sure. Well, my name is Zoltan Ishvan, and uh, a lot of people know me from running for the U.S. presidency 
in uh, 2016 for as the nominee for the Transhumanist Party. Uh, I did some subsequent uh, uh, campaigns as well for Governor of California and another run for U.S. President. But uh, basically, I was running on a science political platform. So a lot of people know me from that. But since then, uh, a lot of interesting things have happened. Uh, I guess the first and foremost is that I'm now a graduate student at the University of Oxford. Uh, I'm studying practical ethics in the philosophy department. I've also published a ton of my essay books, kind of all uh, seven book box set under the Zoltan Ishwan Futurist Collection. You can find it on Amazon. Uh, I'm turning 50 soon. So honestly, that's the biggest thing on my mind right now in about uh, like six, seven weeks. But what's really interesting about turning 50 is it's also the 10 year anniversary of the transhumanist wager, which in mm. many ways is what sort of launched even the presidential campaign kind of put me in the public sphere as somebody as a as a thinker and a writer. So I have a lot of different things um, going on. And I guess finally, uh, I've also have a new wine business and we're trying to mix nootropics with wine mm. to be one of the very first wines uh, that make you smarter. And it's kind of a transhumanist uh, media trick in many ways, because the media loves going there and learning about transhuman wine. Yeah, that sounds interesting. I'd like to know when that's uh, ready to be consumed. Uh, you touched on some a few points there that I'd like to touch on, which is that it's been 10 years since your book. And it's been a very formative 10 years in terms of how technology has evolved over the time. And you also mentioned turning 50, which part of the, you know, interesting changes that have occurred over the past 10 years have a lot to do with how longevity has played out. Some would say the longevity research hasn't done as, as well as we would have expected. So as we kind of look back on these 10 years and, you know, growing older, how do you feel about the way things have changed in that time? Well, I definitely agree with you. And I just wrote a paper, um, at Oxford about this, that the longevity movement has been disappointing in what it's produced. There was a lot of hype. And honestly, I'm kind of, you know, I'm one to blame as among others as a journalist who's written about that hype. Uh, you know, we all want to live indefinitely. Nobody wants to get old. That sounds like a wonderful thing. And yet the the science and the, the biological testing, it just takes a lot longer than I think people um, have considered. So that, that's been a big disappointment. On the other hand, I have to say AI, uh, probably the other big you know, gorilla in the room, has uh, gone faster than most people realize, especially recently with ChatGPT and some of the Boston Dynamics robots. I mean, I, I would say 10 years ago, I wouldn't have, under, uh, wouldn't have guessed that we would be this far along where I might be able to write half my essays using a chatbot um, for free. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and that's that's gone faster. Now, I'm not sure where AI and longevity intersect. Maybe they do in the future, or maybe they're already starting to right now, but uh, maybe one will help the other uh, catch up. Yeah, I definitely want to get to chat GPT. But before that, I want to stick on the biology side of things for a minute. Um, you know, one of the big things, obviously, that occurred since we last spoke was COVID. And I think from a kind of transhuman perspective, COVID has been very interesting because it's made a lot of people very aware of death uh, and in a sense that might have increased our desire to avoid it. But at the same time, I feel like it made a lot of people very hesitant about science. The way that vaccines and whatnot were handled seemed to have kind of given rise to a very anti-science uh, approach in the mainstream. Overall, how do you think these last few years have really played out in terms of their support or their uh, the way they deterred transhuman efforts. Yeah, you know, it's funny, I, like all this week, I've been working on an article about exactly this topic, whether transhumanism grew because of COVID or not. And ultimately, 
I think as a, as a movement, transhumanism grew. There's no question about it. And partially it's because 2021 and 2022, especially the alt-right just went after transhumanism as being the culprit for a lot of the vaccines and a lot of these mm. new crazy technologies and how quickly COVID, you know, kind of spiraled in this political disaster. And, you know, the alt-right, in fact, many ways went after transhumanism. There was a the big Steve Bannon thing on War Room. There was uh, Alex Jones, there's Mark Dice. There's a ton of people that actually wrote about it. And I think they brought a lot of attention to transhumanism from the wrong way. And so trans, but that said, it still grew as a movement as a result of that. Whether the actual movement got uh, perhaps a more favorable approach, probably not. However, uh, there's no question the RNA vaccines were almost as shocking as chat GPT, how quickly they arrived. Mm-hmm. It, you know, I mean, I, I haven't really been that shocked between these two things in science in 10 years before that. And all of a sudden, you know, within days, scientists say, hey, we have a, a, a formulation for a vaccine. Now we just got to test it and we'll have it out in six to eight months. Boom. Like, I really didn't realize the human race was that capable. So it, it did, you know, um, and I guess uh, replace some faith in humanity in a way that we could get this out. I, I'm a believer in the vaccines. And I believed in mass. I wasn't one of those guys out on the, you know, banging my thing on it. Uh, but my wife's a, a doctor. And so, you know, it, it, she's like, look, I, I, we all uh, are going to take it because we think it's going to help. And I know it's not a cure all. I know it. You know, I got COVID and when I was on multiple boosters. But um, COVID was so bad for me that I'm really glad I had something else in my system because I can tell you I was already on the verge of having to go to the emergency room uh, and I don't know what it would have been like without those uh, vaccines. So I was happy for that and happy for the world. And I think transhumanism got a lot of recognition through Mm -hmm. that. But I think the bigger problem is that the (laughs) alt-right really made the vaccine a big giant issue and transhumanism was the 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 dummy that got up beat up and so now we have this kind of twofold world very polarized mm-hmm. and it's hard to really say whether the movement's in a in a better position but there's no question it's it's much more recognized because of the fact that people face death and because scientists came through and people said wow if we can do vaccines like this maybe we can do vaccines for cancer maybe we can do genetic editing with things in the future and that got a lot of people thinking and of course when they think like that they're already thinking like a transhumanist yeah i mean it seems like it it might have potentially helped bring together the scientific community across the world right i feel like a lot of lines of communication were probably opened up between nations that i think in the long term would probably be beneficial yeah Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, definitely. That's the great thing is that if you were on the side of vaccines, you have new friends all over the world. And I, and I think that's a huge part of, you know, why these kind of dilemmas. And if you look at actually the environmental movement, it has kind of similar uh, ideas. You know, so the whaling operations with Greenpeace trying to stop them killing whales really brought the world together. A lot of international groups and the same thing with nuclear uh, weapon testing, you know, uh, environmentalism grew through these mass things. And then the big, you know, the big, uh, uh, you know, I guess the biggest incident that really pushed environmentalism to the forward was the Exxon Valdez oil spill. We're all around the world. People are seeing all these animals and oil and everyone's thought, you know what, we should do better. And so sometimes it takes movements. And I think transhumanism is maybe like 20, 20, five years behind environmentalism in terms of its impact, in terms of its growth of believers. And so I think COVID is just going to be one of those big road mm-hmm. steps along the way that kind of solidified this as not some fringe idea, but as something that is 
here to stay? And how are we going to use this movement for the positivity of the world, you know, to make things actually a better place? And that's something that wasn't there pre-COVID. We weren't uh, so important yet. We were still like, ah, kind of crazy science fiction people. Now, all of a sudden, I think people are saying, wait a sec, you know, this might be the future. So if it is, then we better, uh, we better, you know, utilize it, work with them, understand it and use it to our advantage. Yeah, I wasn't expecting to go down, down this thread. But do you think that the Ukraine war is also playing a role at all in this at all? Because it, it feels like what we're building here a little bit is this narrative that maybe some of the expressions of the worst part of humanity or some of the tragedies that strike us might actually be uh, kind of moments where we realize the importance of something like transhumanism. You know, I got to be honest. So first of all, I'm against Ukraine war. And mm -hmm. I think it's, you know, a pretty horrible situation to have a small country be invaded by a much larger one, Agreed. just under all these, you know, ideas that supposedly are happening. But uh, I think, uh, you know, the Ukrainian people have pretty much said, look, we don't want this. We just want to be a part of the EU and go on with our lives and make money and be happy. <clears throat> so I, I've been very much against it. Um, I don't think it's been too dramatic for transhumanism. What I think it has been dramatic for, not to take you off on another thread, is that yeah. Uh, it has raised inflation, which has caused more and more um, inequality. And the big thing that I worry about with transhumanism in the long run is not so much that the world actually gets there because we need these technologies. We need these technologies. It, it's a matter of time before everybody says, okay, this is better for me. I want to ha have robotic eyes. I want to have a, a, an artificial heart that never you know, stops beating. I don't want to die from aging. I mean, I think a very, everyone will realize that, but I worry that it's very hard to realize those things if you're hungry or if you're super poor or if you can't get a job or things like that because of inflation. Of course, the, the Russia-Ukrainian war has caused an enormous amount of inflation because of what it's done to fossil fuel prices and things like that and put everybody on edge. So for me, the most important thing for transhumanism is that the people never bring out their pitchforks and say, mm -hmm. stop the science, stop everything until we're fed. So it's really important, especially as someone who's run political campaigns, that Governments are able to keep people happy. And I mean just the average person happy yeah. across the spectrum. And that means well-fed, well-educated, you know, a roof over their head and things like that. If you can keep society running, the transhumanism will arrive on its own, probably in time for a lot of us to actually enjoy some of the anti-aging benefits, et cetera. But wars, those are the kinds of things that, you know, I mean, when, when other time have we been talking about potentiality of nuclear war, uh, with Russia again, I mean, it's, it's almost crazy to me that we actually as a have to in the Western world have to consider these things again. And so it's very sad and it's causing distress to a lot of people. Well, you touched on uh, you touched on chat GPT there. And uh, I actually noticed last night that you, you put out a <laughs> post on Facebook uh, and you, you said this before in the beginning a little bit, but you basically said between chat GPT and Boston Dynamics, we basically have 36 months before jobs and college and a lot of the uh, the things that we hold dear right now are just no longer going to exist for the average human. Can you just talk a little bit about what, you know, drove you to make that post and kind of where your brain's at around how this is unfolding? Sure. And, and I totally stand behind the post, but just one kind of little correction is that I, I said it would start to phase out after 36 months, which is quite a big difference because, you know, people have been bashing me saying, oh, how could writing be gone in, in three years? It's not that it's going to be gone, but I would be very surprised if, let's say, uh, you know, uh, even Singularity University is using a lot of journalists to put forth original content when they could save money and put forth semi-original content 
but put those money towards something else for the growth of the company. After all, these are these are enterprises of that nature. And if journalists can be replaced with ChatGPT, they probably will be. And I, I've been writing and I've been utilizing ChatGPT already. So it's not like I'm just talking. I actually went on and <laughs> used it and it's cut hours out of my writing already. Now I'm able to edit those things and still requires a lot of this. But if you want a general sentence on science, like tell me what stem cell technology is doing in the last 10 years, it's incredibly good. And, and my wife, when she reads my essay, she can see where ChatGPT has done the writing and where I have done it because I'm full of typo, typos and grammars and all these other things. So we're in a, in a and that's today. And mm -hmm. I know there's a new ChatGPT coming out in spring, which is, you know, many, many times more powerful. So if you take out 36 months, I think it's very fair to say that a lot of writing will be replaced by ChatGPT and over a 10-year period, potentially phased out entirely until everybody just has their own subreddit or something like that, trying to get some money from their few friends. But um, in my opinion, there's really no way that a lot of journalism houses can uh, continue, unless they're nonprofit or something, can continue to use uh, people when they could be using machines for a tenth of the cost that are much more quicker on deadline and things like that. And the same thing goes for engineering. We were um, developing a 16-foot uh, a, a wide gate at my winery in Napa Valley. And, you know, I was drawing it up by hand because the engineers, the plans cost 800 bucks. It's a really simple gate. It didn't need much engineering. And I looked at some of the apps that are coming out trying to utilize ChatGPT with the engineering idea, architectural drawings. And they can't, they're not there yet, but I, I can almost guarantee within 18 months, they will be there and maybe only cost $5 to use as opposed to the $8 engineer. So for something simple, like a gate that actually the city or the county requires a permit for, it would work. And then you talk about college. I talked about this to my wife last night. I said, you know, um, what do we do with the kids? I have a 12 year old and a nine year old, uh, two girls. And, uh, you know, we, we obviously want them to go to college, but what would they do? I mean, you know, I mean, if, if everything is sort of taken over or being utilized on machines and maybe, okay, even in 10 years, maybe they're, they'll still be able to work. But what about 20 and 30 years? Mm -hmm. Probably not. They probably, unless they're actually plugged in like a neural link system, um, they're not going to be quick enough. And even then, they're still not going to be as quick as an AI, because by then the AI will be, you know, a thousand times better than it is now. So do you send kids to college when there's really no aftermarket for them? Yes. Rich people will probably send them just to get the experience, and maybe they won't send them to such expensive colleges anymore, and now they can save money for a house. But I worry that um, you know what ChatGPT does to academic papers in Oxford. It, to some extent, it works, especially when it's academic and you can use references, it, it's really uh, you know daunting. And the great thing about ChatGPT, too, is I've always been trying to sell the rights, movie rights to the transhumanist wager. Unsuccessfully, we had Fox interested in a while, and we had some other people interested, but didn't sell it. And now I realize within probably five to seven years, we're going to have an AI that can create a fully fledged Hollywood movie based on my book. I'll see it before I die. That's something, uh, you know, if I die, uh, that, that, that I would really that I would really like to see in my lifetime. And uh, this is the promise of this. I, I hate to say that the promise is coupled also with people losing jobs. Maybe there'll mm -hmm. be some new jobs created, but likely universal basic in income more than anything will have to be used here because uh I just can't see how, uh, through engineering, architecture, um, you, the, the robot, uh, 
um, you know, the robotics companies creating robots that can go in and fix plumbing mm -hmm. pipes, as you saw recently in, uh, in the Dynamics robot. Um, there's so much stuff happening that we're looking at a, a, a three to 10 year window of complete transformation of society. And uh, so I stand behind that. I just want to make sure people understand when I said three, 36 months, I didn't mean it's going to be black and white over. That's where the phase is really going to begin, where you're going to wake up and realize that, wow, um, this is the sunset to my job. And there's probably nothing else I can do because it'll take too long to get educated. And then that'll be obsolete. So where do I go? How do you reconcile that as a as a father and a you know philosopher in this space? How do you reconcile this idea that the foundation upon which your life is built and your kid's life thus far has been built is going to become something that is completely non-existent in the future? How do you what what do you instill in your kids to prepare them for that future? Because I feel like that's lessons that maybe we could all use. Well, I, I, so first off, I wish I had a really good answer, but I don't. Mm -hmm. Right now, I think we're all winging it because what happened is like the chat GPT or even the vaccine for COVID, all this stuff is coming out so quickly that nobody really knows how to even deal with it. You know, we're just like, and what's happening is when you look at kind of law of accelerated returns and things like that, the, the fact is that it's going to become more like that and even faster and even faster and even faster. So we're really left behind on how to deal with all the, these things from kind of a psychological and philosophical perspective. We just can't fathom that kind of speed. And so I don't actually have any good answers for my daughters right now. I can tell you what I've been telling friends, which is if you have a chance to make money, you want to make it as quickly as possible, because I don't know that opportunity to make money in the future is uh, is really going to be there in the same way. It might all belong to giant corporations and it might be a lot of handouts from the government because that's the only way to keep the people from completely revolting. Now, people will say, and I've argued this in one of my Oxford papers, that we could try to stop AI at this point, which honestly um, might be a, a logical and a rational idea, uh, maybe even a moral idea, given the dangers, because we can talk about some of my other papers. And, you know, I talk about what happens if AI keeps going and becomes sort of an AI god in, in 50 years, which is projected to be. What if it doesn't like humans? What if it doesn't like what human beings are doing to the planet, some of the environmental damage and decides it doesn't need us? There are already bio labs in China right now. They're completely robotized, you know, completely made of robots. And so they are already able to make maybe bioterrorism weapons and things like that just on demand. So the, the point is, how will that affect? And, I, you know, when it comes to my kids, I'm just like, Make as much money as you can. You know, my kids are too young, but anyone, I have a ton of, you know, friends, of course, on Facebook and Twitter and all that. And if you're between 18 and 30, just go out there and make it, maybe try to buy a house or learn some skill that you don't think is going to be replaced necessarily by a robot. And if it is replaced, still be able to do it. Like I still think building houses or fixing pipes or, mm -hmm. um, you know, some of those jobs, because at least you can build yourself a house. At least you can cook for yourself. I mean, whatever it is, you might have, it might almost be going backwards given how fast AI is going because I think what's going to happen is inequality is going to continue to grow at a faster rate and the, the chat GPT and the AIs out there are just going to make it more so. And so whatever skills you know, like as a real human being, um, they might be very practical. For example, you know, I, I, I've always been in construction my whole life. That's sort of how I made my, my money. And uh, I build houses from start, from scratch. I still do that. Uh, honestly, if AI takes over, I told my wife, well, we can always just go to the, uh, you know, the forest somewhere and build ourselves a house and live happily. You know, I mean, these are real traits. And so I, I suggest mm -hmm. people do that. Pe people say, oh, I want to go into coding. And I'm like, 
I don't know if that's going to be there, you know, in, in five, 10 years. I think, you know, we're already seeing the chat GPT code and put up little websites. So I doubt that's going to be there. I doubt engineering, architecture, lawyering, all these things are going to be there. Probably be podcasters for a while because we like the human touch. There'll probably be human baristas at, uh, at, at Starbucks and things like that because uh, we like that human thing. But um, do whatever you can right now because I just don't see the market remaining the same in five to ten years. Yeah. Uh, and that you know, so this might this might be a bit of a, an uncomfortable question for you, but could you steal man the ethical uh, reasons to stop AI? Do you, do you think that there could you could you maybe put forth some of the uh, put that Oxford education to use sure. and, and yeah. give us some reasons <laughs> to not do it? Well, so, you know, I think I, and I didn't finish that statement, so thank you. So I'll, I'll try that here. You know, I, I think there's a moral reason to try to stop AI, especially because of uh, Rokos Vasilik, which is this kind of concept of darkness from an AI that decides to punish you because you didn't help bring it into creation. But there's also the AI kind of God that's positive version, which, you know, might be beneficial for humankind. But I think in the end of the day, we don't want to have that danger. It, it would be like inviting really powerful aliens to Earth. If you were a rational person, you would never do that because life is good enough now and we're going to evolve to their technology in time anyways. But it's just like nuclear weaponry. You can say we shouldn't have nuclear weapons. That makes a lot of sense to, in game theory and all these other things. But nobody does that because capitalism drives society. Global politics drives society. Materialism and protection and ego drives society. So as long as we have all these things in place, I doubt that we're going to do anything but to have regulatory bodies controlling the development of AI. And America is always going to try to be the first. Russia is going to try to be the first. China is going to try to be the first. And so we get to this idea of that I, I developed a long time ago called the AI imperative, where you want to develop the most, the strongest AI as quickly as possible, and then make sure that you send out hacking or codes or viruses to all the other AIs so you remain stronger. And that's really, I think, the entire mm -hmm. point of a lot of the US armed forces at this point. And when, when you talk to some of the kind of the, the futurists that are a part of them, the way they see it, they're like, wow, in order to stay ahead, we're gonna always have to be one technological step ahead. And at some point you get so technologically advanced, you might just be able to send off viruses so people can never develop and uh, then you reach that AI imperative but yes we have a moral job to not to stop ai because i think it's way too dangerous i think most uh, many philosophers would agree with that at least stop it from becoming too great mm -hmm. um maybe not stop it right now because right now it's becoming very useful but there's a point when you get to agi or an intelligence that's comparable to us and we can no longer control it that may be very dangerous and yet at the same time i don't see that happening i see and the i want to say one other point and i argued a lot about this in one of my oxford papers is that even if the the world stopped trying to develop an agi or a super intelligent agi um We'd probably have rogue countries do it. We'd probably mm -hmm. have criminals do it. Other hackers would do it. So it, it's almost like you're forced, sort of like with nuclear weaponry, you come to an equilibrium. And okay, we have you know 14,000 nuclear weapons on the planet. Maybe it's 25,000. Uh, well, it was before. And um, you know that's enough to mm -hmm. keep the stability. And maybe we'll come to a point when AIs can kind of go at each other. But again, I, I just think once, um, and when I say go at each other, I mean, they'll probably like, maybe there's an equilibrium between our technology and China's technology. But the problem is this is such a fast moving field that it's not really like nuclear weaponry. It would be like nuclear weaponry keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then sometimes maybe being able to think on its own. So I, I think 
it, we're dealing with a different type of game theory with AI where you really need to be the, the winner and you better hope that the West is the winner because at least it supports democracy and maybe that will be instilled in this AI. But the problem is once AI becomes so smart, it may not give a damn about democracy, about people, about any mammalian tech, uh, tendencies that people have. It just may be um, ready to, uh, to take us over. And the biggest thing I worry about is some of the environmental destruction we're doing against the planet. AI might take real, uh, you know, take that the wrong way and just say really like, hey, why do we need humans? Maybe AI doesn't need humans and maybe it's in its best interest to create a virus that takes us all out. So having said all of that, <laughs> where do you stand on the idea of something like a regulatory body stepping in in any way, shape or form? I mean, well, so, you know, when I was running for president, I, you know, I was always anti-military, but if I was going to spend any money on the military and, and of course, I naturally spend some for protection people and whatnot. And I think some of our goals are good, especially in Ukraine and whatnot. But the point of the story, I would be spending an enormous amount on artificial intelligence research and development, because the real key here is that we wake up in 15 years and China has it first, and then all of a sudden it's just able to stop all the traffic lights in America, all the water distribution in America, because everything's uh, digital these days, all the power plants and things like that, and literally put us back into the dark ages. Me doesn't even have to kill us, it just has to put us into the dark ages. We have no internet, imagine what we do. <laughs> we wouldn't know what to do. Uh, and the, the point is that, um, so as, Beyond regulatory, I think, framework, because that probably doesn't work fully. I just think we we probably need government intervention. And I hate to say that as sort of a libertarian-minded person. I'm just not. But this is a this is the different animal than everything else. This is not about your own freedom. This is about, in fact, if you look at the non-aggression principle, AI could violate it incredibly into the in the future, meaning that AI will violate all the rights of humanity by deciding it doesn't need us or whatever. So there are reasons, even libertarian ones, that you would put forth to try to protect yourself from AI. And that might mean that human military and human government action would, would be very severe. I'm not saying I want soldiers walking into Google's headquarters right now, but there may come a day when that simply has to be done. And that engineers from these companies, Apple, Google, everywhere else, Microsoft, have to work with uh, government agencies to make sure that some kind of balance uh, uh, and some kind of uh, you know checks and balances of power is in place. Uh, and then that, of course, that's coupled against the the powers of China and Russia working on it as well. So it, you know it's it's very difficult. But um, I want to make sure at least um, it's this is a, this is one thing that I don't know if I want private companies entirely responsible for. Yeah, understandable. Well, you know, one distinction I don't think we've made in the past, and I don't know if I've heard you make super often, is kind of the line between transhumanism and posthumanism. And obviously, you've talked about mind uploads and all of these things, but do, do you favor one direction versus the other? Are you okay with us becoming fully, um, you know, robotic, fully uploaded, you know, fully out of the meat puppets, so to speak? Or are you really hoping at this point that we bring the the ai on board and, and merge with it or use it more as a tool and, and stay predominantly human like how do you how do you draw the the line in the sand between these two sure sure you know in all my papers at oxford i always end up saying that we should just merge with ai that's mm -hmm. the the best thing i i still think first off i still think getting rid of all biology is probably uh, a very useful thing. There's just an enormous uh, amount of suffering inherent in biology in itself. It doesn't matter if it's a coyote in my backyard or if if it's uh, you, you know even my child uh, that you know is crying about this or that. I mean, okay, humans 
experienced very little suffering compared to the rest of the biological world. But I have supported quite a bit of ending predation ideas because it's just like we are predators at the very core. That's what the, how the human food cycle works. And so we would be doing ourselves a moral service by ridding ourselves of biology and also ridding uh, a lot of nature of biology, at least some complex forms and the higher up forms. Um, this is very tricky slope though, because we wanna make sure that A, we don't lose ourselves, lose the, the what we're trying to do in the first place, which is something very loving, kind and compassionate, let us end suffering. And two, we wanna make sure that AI doesn't somehow take us over and we become monsters in ourselves and lost you know, lost what it was that we're, you know, we're kind of doing. And because AI is moving so quickly, it's very challenging now to imagine that we're going to be able to create something that uploads our consciousness right at the exact moment that AI needs us to do it before it becomes too powerful. Right. Um, you know, in fact, if people had told me right now, you know, should we try to put a moratorium on, moratorium on AI for, uh, you know, five years, just so that the, the, you know, the Neuralinks and the Brian Johnson's kernel and some of these other companies has a chance to catch up with the technology of AI so that when it actually reaches sort of a singularity, we get to go with it as opposed to it becoming something that might just want to destroy people. I would say uh, I would at least consider that idea because we are at a point when I think a lot of the brainwave uh, technology where we can upload ourselves is nowhere near the capability of how fast AI is developing. It used to be 10 years ago, we had this conversation. It was still too fuzzy. We still thought, oh, we're going to time it perfectly. And boom, we have merged with the singularity and gone. And now I'm telling you, the singularity is going to come and go. And what might also go is the human race, just because yeah. as, as, as an afterthought of this AI. So that's something that has definitely changed in 10 years. But I think that's very important is that we put a huge amount of money towards understanding how to upload ourselves. But in the long run, yes, I do think we want to get out of these bodies of meat. Um, their biology in itself is inherently immoral because it causes suffering. If I was, let's just say God, and I had all this power, let's say, and I could create an entity, I would never create a biological entity that would need oxygen or it would die suffering in front of its family, you know, in, in one or two minutes or freeze to death or, you know, uh, give birth and it's all bloody and, and, and very barbaric and people die, you know, I would do something where it's much more ones and zeros, robots, things that can be much more interchangeable and live, you know, thousands of years. So I, I think biology is immoral. And I've said this uh, quite a bit. In fact, this is what a lot of Steve Bannon and his alt-right people last year went after me for, because some of my work was coming out from Oxford where I was really arguing against uh, biology in itself. Yeah. There's a there's a bit of a paradox that came to mind here a little bit, which was wanting to develop these tools that kind of, I guess, bring AI uh, under our umbrella, gain, gain some control over them through something like Neuralink, but also stop biological suffering. And, you know, one of the big things that kind of came out recently was the amount of animal deaths that took place for the animal testing at Neuralink. From kind of an ethical standpoint, are you more of a deontologist or a consequentialist in the sense that the means justify the ends? You know, do we do we yeah, yeah. embrace? Oh, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's not an easy <laughs> oh, question. It's, ter it's terrible. Yeah, well, I think I'm more of a, a consequentialist. Um, but you know, I got to be honest. If you took me to the laboratory and made me look at it, I, I'd be like, ah. Uh, and uh, even now, the, the entire philosophy department at Oxford, well, at least the ethics uh, section of it, has now doesn't eat meat at all. So, like when you go and have a dinner with them, the de facto serving is all vegetarian stuff. If you want meat, you have to actually ask for it. So and that's because everybody there really believes um, in not harming animals whatsoever. So this has been a very tough one for me. But I, I just feel like. 
ultimately that we we want to um, can, can go forward because we have eight billion lives at stake, and the more that aren't at stake, um, you know, uh, the the better. We need to try to save as many people as possible. So it's kind of a trolley problem. As much as it sucks, you you'd pull the lever to to kill the one to save the five. Yes, 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 I think so. But believe me, I tell you, as someone who worked in National Geographic for many years and covered a lot of animal stories, as well as an executive director at Wild Aid, which really worked to try to eliminate uh, poaching, this is brutal for me. And I love cats and dogs and all this other stuff. But uh, it's just it's such a difficult decision. But you really got to say, wait a sec, there are 8 billion people out there and they're all going to die. And so we're causing a, a very small amount of suffering to a very small you know, group of uh, animals to hopefully move forward the entire human race. And also, I think, you know, there are some weird things there that I just want to say, uh, it, it, you know, I can go off a little bit on a tangent, but you've heard of technological resurrection, you've heard of quantum archaeology, some of these ideas. There is also this possibility that let's say you took uh, 500 monkeys and you had to use them. Uh, I believe that at some point in the future, we will come to a point when we can technologically resurrect a lot of entities that once existed by reverse engineering subatomic matter. That means we could bring back your great great grandfather, for example, one minute before he died and, uh, you know, and, and go back and bring back him. And there are entire groups of people that want to bring back everybody uh, that has ever died. I think there might be a moral argument to be made that we could bring back a lot of these animals that had to suffer and then make them live out their entire lives in peace and beautiful nature parks or whatever, even though we'd be very sophisticated uh, AIs or whatever by then. But, uh, you know, to, to, and then say a, a great thank you or something like that. I, I, this is a very strange and a little bit science fiction argument, but there are some more other reasons other than just a, a very mathematical choice or consequentialist choice, I do think at some point we can make up for our morality in other ways. And I'm hoping uh, that, uh, you know, tell, uh, basically technological resurrection through this quantum archaeology technology could be one way to make up for a lot of wrongs that it took to get to this place, which is hopefully totally right. I think quantum archaeology is a very uh, niche term. Could you you know, expound on that a little bit for people who are hearing that word and thinking, what the hell is that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry. And I probably should have done it in the beginning. Yeah, no, no worries. <laughs> quantum archaeology is, is essentially uh, this idea that you will be able to bring back people uh, in the future by reverse engineering subatomic matter. So basically, if you take your great, 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 great grandfather, one moment, one minute before he died, he has a, DNA, he has a subatomic footprint that was there right at that moment. And at some point, we're going to create such massive supercomputers. We already have supercomputers that do 300,000 trillion calculations per second. So imagine what will happen in 100 years, um, especially with the help of AI and things like that. The idea is that we would be able to reverse engineer what has happened on planet Earth or in the universe, even if it's just a certain person, and go back in time mathematically and figure out what that subatomic footprint is. And then 3D bioprinting technology is already here. We already have 3D bioprinting technology to print out a little bit of a beating heart, things like that. I, I have a very good feeling within 50 or 100 years, we'll probably be able to print out a full human being. So if we have a subatomic 
structure of molecules of whatever that person was that minute before they died, and we had the 3D bioprinting technology, we would then be able to bring out, bring back that person back to life exactly as that person was one minute before they died. Now, maybe we'd bring it back 10 years before they died, and we'd probably by then have technology to reverse age as well. But the point is we would be able to bring back somebody exactly as they are. So that's really the quantum archaeology concept. And as people have pointed out, the entire subatomic footprint of the human race, if you just took it right now, would fit inside like an eight square mile data bank. So it's not much, you know, it's not that much content. It's, uh, you know, given how big the universe is, eight square miles is nothing. So the question is, will we ever have the technology to go back in time? And does reverse engineering even work because of deterministic ideas and whatnot? Some people like Stephen Hawking might agree that it probably does. Others would say, no, there's no way you can do it. But I tend to think there's probably going to be a way to figure it out, given a thousand years or 500 years. So this takes away death. This is another way of getting out of death entirely. Because uh, so there are entire transhumanist organizations right now that want to reprint everybody who has ever died. Again, I, I'm not saying this idea works. Um, I, I haven't been shown enough science to see that the science is sound. I just know that it's probably 50-50. And if it does work, it means nobody could ever die because we would then re be able to recreate them. Um, and, and it changes the way I look at morality, because now I know there's a 50-50 shot of being able to take those monkeys that are being worked on on Neuralink and maybe give them a life someday to make up for a moral choice, uh, a, 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 what I would consider an evil moral choice that I made right now. And so I think quantum archaeology, or some other people call it technological resurrection, is, is a new way for transhumanists to try to grapple with the, you know, the metaphysics of the world and also the fact that maybe death doesn't even exist whatsoever in the way that we interpret. It certainly exists, but it also exists that you would have, you know, to be honest with you, a lot of Christians like this concept because they think this is exactly how Jesus would bring back people. He would have had that technology to technologically resurrect people by knowing exactly their subatomic footprint. And um, so anyways, that for your listeners, that's what that is. It, I got to be honest, like I said, it's an idea we work on in philosophy. It's not proven science yet. But if it is true, it really changes a lot of the way we look at the entire movement, because all of a sudden, the goal is not to not die. The goal is to actually push forward a lot of these technologies, which not just brings back, keeps yourself living, but brings back every human being who has ever lived, including maybe every animal or every everything. I mean, it would be a complete new way of looking at morality and looking at existence. Yeah. Well, you know, before we jump off the topic of ethics, what are some of the leading things that you've been thinking about at university? I don't know if you can share anything about like the thesis that you are exploring or some of the ideas that maybe have been sparked, but is there anything that this experience has kind of made you reconsider or that has brought um, some salience to in your attention? Well, I think one of the biggest things I'm working on right now is how um, artificial intelligence may be very upset with the human race for screwing up the planet environmentally. And what that means in terms of a, a hundred year future with this machine that is upset with us, uh, will it want to get rid of us? Like, you know, I mean, if, for example, if you have a rat problem in your house, you try to get rid of the rats. Most people would kill the rats. Uh, if, and if that's something that AI takes that sort of same idea or any ant problem, it may, uh, and that's probably what it's going to look like. We'd probably be ants compared to the intelligence of a super intelligent AI. 
uh, how would we do that? So this is a, a new idea because everyone's been considering, you know, AI gods or Rocco's Basilica and what, whatnot, but um, no one, uh, very few people at this point have been really looking at how AI might be very angry at us for the environmental damage we do to its home just as well. Now, maybe AI won't need our home after, you know, becoming a super intelligent. Maybe it'll just span the cosmos and figure out how to find energy there, but maybe it'll be pissed off. And maybe before it leaves or, you know, grows too strong, it'll decide we're not useful. So uh, th this is a very different reason than taking us out because, it doesn't like us. Now it's taking us out for a very functional reason. We as human beings have become to some extent a virus on planet Earth in terms of the rest of the the, the structure. And um, that's, uh, that's a lot of where my thesis has been going right now, because um, I worry about it. I worry that AI might even like us, but it's like, but you're bad. You're bad for the planet. You're bad for everything else. The diversity of the species that created me, which ultimately, you know, AI has evolved from, uh, you're bad. And maybe it might even decide it doesn't need so many humans. Maybe it only needs like 500 million humans, which of course goes on with some of the conspiracy theories that going on in Davos right now and whatnot. So, uh, you know, but this is a lot of what my uh, thesis has been pushed for uh, at Oxford is kind of trying to delve into this environmentalism versus AI not liking us idea. Well, as we as we kind of look at how things have unfolded, um, you know, with the surprise of of ChatGPT and and AI taking over uh, artists and writers' uh, place in society, really sooner than it's done with things like truck drivers, which is basically completely the opposite of what everyone thought. Um, are there other things that you're seeing that are just gross um, misunderstandings that we've made or predictions that we've made that, you know, did, is something really underappreciated or underhyped that is now showing we should have been paying more attention all along? Or is there something that we boosted up way too much that you're like, wow, we completely got that wrong. That's not important whatsoever. One of the things that's really been shocking and happy to talk about here is that I, I feel like it's been become very clear that social media is bad for the planet. Mm -hmm. Like, and, and that's something that even a few years ago I, I would have thought, but now I'm like, listen to me, it's not just bad. It's like a disease that's eating you. And I'm seeing, for example, my 76 uh, year old mother use Facebook and believe things that she shouldn't be believing, or, you know, and I'm seeing young, my kids now start to use TikTok obsessively and it's very hard to stop them. They all have iPads at schools and this and that. And, um, because one per, one friend will have a phone that has access and nobody else will, even if you turn it off. Um, and I think that's this is skewing how we deal with each other. Typically, if you say something like, you know, you're, you're two people are arguing, you say, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. You're this and this and this and bad person. In the real world, like, I think at least 50% of the people would be like, at least physically confronted. And, you know, that might actually even go further than just like, an argument. That's just how it had worked for the last, uh, you know, uh, millennia. Uh, human beings are. They deal with things like, don't say that because there's a physical confrontation coming. Now everyone says everything to everyone and everybody's super angry all the time or super depressed. And, um, and I think this is really bad for how humans learn to adapt to one another. And this is why everyone's becoming crazy, why we keep hearing the word civil war thrown out around America, uh, because everybody's so angry, but I don't really think they are that angry. I think when you're in physical presence, everybody has a kind of a buffer zone. Like nobody says that stuff to me physically because they they know that I'm a you know 220 pound male. Like you just, you don't do that. And, and when I say it back, I say it in courtesy, like, you know, 
I want to treat everybody well. I want to be nice. I want to get along. Nobody wants to fight. Nobody wants to. But on social media, you can say whatever you want. You say things you would never say in person. I think this has totally skewed the way our brains work, which is why everybody is totally pissed off. There's no more sense of balance to that anymore. And um, so many people have so less friends and so much interaction on the internet. They forget that that's not the real world. That's just a, a chamber, like a echo chamber. And I really think um, this is going to have huge ramifications going forward because everybody's going to be so angry. And also with inequality growing, people are going to be so poor. And I worry that everybody's losing their mind on social media. So, you know, that's the biggest grill in the room for me is, you know, I, I'm not saying we should outlaw it, but I certainly would. Uh, I've certainly outlawed it for my kids to some extent. I can tell you that. So, yeah. well, I mean, I feel like a, a natural part of uh, the transhuman evolution is increased global connectivity, instant communication. What form does that kind of uh, communication, I guess, take if not social media? I mean, I know that's, I know social media definitely isn't the end all be all. It's not the most sophisticated solution, but this does feel like the direction in some ways that we were promised all along. And it's, is, is it just that we miss? you know, misread the expectations of what humans would do with it? Or is this just a bad implementation? I think it's probably just an early implementation. I think mm -hmm. at some point when we are in hazmat suits or it's much more virtual or augmented reality, we might see somebody. Uh, if you could see somebody virtually, like my reaction when somebody says some of the stuff they said to my Twitter, you know, th this has gotten a huge amount of responses. And some of the stuff people said to me, they nobody would ever say in person because they'd be like, oh, wait, wait a sec, you know, we're, we're, we're human beings. And we, we have a natural tendency, I think, to want to get along generally. And um, uh, so I, I think as, as the technology evolves, it becomes more of the metaverse. Um, probably that will improve a little bit. And I think also AI will help teach people that you can't just act like that. Um, you know, you, you need to be more balanced than that. And maybe even like down, you know, not give you the amount of clicks you want or not make it so your message even goes through. I have, you know, said forever, it'd be really wise to have an AI that's kind of on our short shoulder, you know, uh, making sure we don't do stupid things like making sure soldiers don't commit suicide because they've got PTSD or making sure people don't make a stupid driving error. And I, I think, you know, at some point these chat, bots will be so into us or a part of our lives or in our phones or watching over us through some type of technology that it will help us live better, more moral lives. And I think more eloquent lives. We're going to learn to be civil to one another. In fact, hopefully we get to some type of utopia where we all act very civilized. We could all have very differing opinions and vote differently and all this other stuff, but we don't act like, uh, you know, we're drunk in some bar because that's really what Twitter and, and Facebook has become like. I mean, it's it's no people say things to me there that they would never say to me in person. And it's funny, sometimes people hate me and then they meet me in person. And we have the most civilized conversation. We find a lot of things to agree on because in person, people like to get along. I don't know what it is about social media that makes everybody like a drunken sailor. It's just crazy. Yeah, I agree with you on that front. Well, as we kind of uh, come to a close here, I, I would be interested to hear just kind of a very big picture uh, aim for you. What What is a thing that you would love to see happen at this stage in the movement and society? And if you could also, what is the obstacle that's keeping us from attaining that big goal of yours? 
I, you know, I, I think the biggest goal still remains that I would like to find a way to end aging, despite the quantum archaeology ideas, despite, uh, you know, AI, you know, merging with AI, whatever. I still think it's very important as a first and foremost concern that we try to find biological ways to extend our lives so that we can continue to have these conversations, continue the research so that one day we have a much clearer choice of how we want the future to unfold and we can be alive in it. And that requires money. So when it comes to the still the number one goal I'm trying to do, a lot of it is just trying to put funding into the hands of scientists. And my very first essay at Oxford was really about how much slower the longevity movement is uh, evolving than I thought. And even though there's a lot of new money going in, and maybe that new money in the last, because in the last few years, there's been a ton of money going in, um, maybe that will have some change here in seven to 10 years. But it's only been the last few years that really we've seen some billions start rolling in. And I mean, from venture capital firms and stuff like that. We need much more of that. We need government to support that. We need, it'd be great if a president just came on board and just said, hey, here's the next moonshot. We are going to try to make it so that the average lifespan of America goes from, you know, 75 to 95. And, uh, and, And that would be like, there's a, you know, give that man a Nobel Prize or a woman a Nobel Prize, whoever it is. I think the point of the story is that we need those kinds of things. And until that happens, until there's more, you know, cheerleading around longevity, we're never going to get to it, not at least in my lifetime, I mean, my children's lifetime, which will be very sad for all of us that have already fought it. And even every day on Facebook, uh, I do see people uh, dying, you know, people that have been interested in the movement um, and, uh, and, and not here anymore. So I, I think that's, uh, that's really where, what I'd like to see is more people uh, take on the cause of longevity and put money into it. And also maybe treating the scientists more like rock stars. Uh, it, you know, I really, I enjoyed watching the World Cup. It was fantastic. I was just like, how can we get longevity to be that same thing? And, you know, when I was at XPRIZE uh, doing some work with them, you know, I had proposed a longevity peace prize Unfortunately, this hasn't been picked up yet, but eventually we need something like this that really gets people in a game and thinking this is how do we have these giant events about celebrating maybe somebody who that year did the great thing. We need something like that. It'd be great if could be the Congress could make something like that or I don't know what to be another sort of Nobel Prize. But that I think, you know, ending death is still remains the biggest challenge because if you're gone, you're just not here to enjoy it. So I think that for me still remains the number one thing too. And I, let me just say really quickly, you know, one of the reasons I uh, decided to go back to graduate school is because uh, as I was running my political campaigns, I just felt like I was missing a, a graduate degree compared to some of the other major candidates. So uh, here I'll be finishing very so- soon, probably by the, the end of this year. I just have, in fact, uh, a few more classes to attend in person. And uh, hopefully, uh, maybe I'll do some more political campaigns when I try to bring longevity to the forefront again. I think, you know, the, the longer it, we, we're out there, the more transhumanism makes sense to the public. So maybe uh, one day will come when I'm actually in a position to actually make a, a, a much more significant difference. Yeah, I look forward to having a conversation with you when that happens. Uh, Zoltan, any closing thoughts before we call an end to this? No, except, you know, in three or four years, when we do this again, it'll be so interesting to see how the chat GPT and AI has played out and whether uh, you and I are already able to maybe do this through our minds, maybe not in three or four years, but soon, soon. And uh, and I think that's for me, I'm just, I just discovered the AI uh, you know, a few weeks ago when I started using it and everyone had told me about it and I thought, okay, okay. And as soon as you use it, you realize, oh, wow, this is sort of end game for so many things. So if your readers are out there, go try to use it and try to think what it's going to mean for your future. Because I do mean this very seriously. I think uh, two, three years, the world starts changing. We hit a 
a plateau of what it means for work for a lot of occupations. And from there on, it's just downhill. So if your listeners are out there, try to do what you can now. And unfortunately, I, the very first time I've ever said this, uh, or at least you know, argued it, is that it may not be college anymore because college will take a certain amount of time. And by the time you get out, it won't work. What people really need to do now is do something productive in their lives. It could be writing a book. It could be uh, creating a symphony. It could be something, but uh, do something in the real world because the future is changing so quick. So whatever you're planning for, like, you know, we want our my daughters to become doctors. There, there's not going to be doctors in 20, 30 years that are, you know, using their hands anymore when we could use a robot. I mean, maybe there will be, maybe the, the governments will come in and put a moratorium on, you know, that kind of stuff. But if capitalism wins, there's very, there's more likely to be robot surgeons and, um, and maybe, you know, some engineers that fix them when they break, or even they'll probably fix themselves. So I, I just feel like the next few years are critical for your listeners and ourselves as we try to make do with what we have in the world before uh, AI becomes so powerful.